But have you ever read a story that was so long or complex that you had to just kind of keep flipping back to remember who was who and what was what? You ever read that kind of story? I've read some lengthy books in my time, but uh, Leo Tolstoy's War and Peace has been one that was kind of like, it's kind of like the Mount Everest of novels, right? After several attempts to climb it, I never actually made it through all 1,225 pages. It may exhaust you just thinking about reading that many pages. Not only was, was there a new character every, you know, it seemed like every chapter or so, um, the, all the names were kind of similar as, you know, the Russian names with a few extra consonants here and there. It was just very difficult to keep up with who was who and what was what. It's 32 hours reading if you're an average pace of reader. 32 hours. A few years ago, I read a, a chapter a night of the Harry Potter series uh, with my daughter, and the fourth book 870 pages long. Um, and I would struggle at times. Granted, this was also at night, and I get sleepy at night, which, you know, that happens. I'd struggle at remembering people and plot lines uh, in that series. But, you know, it's not just books that we forget the story, right? It's not just books that we forget the plot line. Have you ever been listening to someone tell a story, and it was either so long or so detailed that you find yourself nodding politely because you've already asked your limit of questions, like three or four clarifying questions, and at that point it starts to get awkward, and they just think you're not listening, but it's the story. You lose it, right? In books and in life, we can find ourselves losing the plot. It's just part of the human condition, isn't it? We get fuzzy on all the important details. We drift from the intention and from the meaning, from the big picture. Sometimes it's all trees and no forest. Sometimes it's just forest and no trees. And you might say that losing the plot really is the human condition. It happens to each of us, and it happens to the communities and societies we make. Just a uh, um, an experience this week. I found myself singing the battle hymn of the Republic. I don't know why, glory, glory, hallelujah. I think I was singing it and sort of um, joking around with my daughter. And it, you know, it shot through my mind and I thought, well, well, that's a strange song. So I looked up the lyrics of that and, you know, we've heard it, we've sung it. I only knew maybe a verse and a half. So I looked them up, read this. I might, I might need you guys to turn this on if I'm dying up here on this. Um, just in case. Have you ever read those lyrics? They left me wondering this. How on earth do Christians, and particularly abolitionists during the Civil War, read the Bible and compare the kingdom of God with artillery, with burnished rows of steel, and the watchfires of a hundred circling camps? Whether it's a just war or not, you know, it's like America, America isn't the kingdom of God that Jesus announced. I'm going to cut this off. And tell me, is this working? Good. All right. Got a little ring there. You know, but man, you read that and you think they just belong together. Is America's story the kingdom's story or is there obvious differentiation there? And so that's where I found myself this week in the Battle Hymn of the Republic. So it goes. But if you zoom back into our own lives, we are all too drawn away by our own personal subplots. They're what we're living. They're what's real. And on the one hand, some circumstances promise our personal benefit and prosperity. Some of them promise our long-awaited stability and the hope of less complexity and more predictability. We look through the pinhole of the present, right, to see a really great picture. But on the other hand, painful circumstances can bury the plot, right? That's the pinhole we look through. They bury the plot beneath the rubble of our suffering and our loss. 
And in either case, we as followers of Jesus can lose the call to live in functional trust, to live as a faith community, and to keep, keep the love of neighbor in view while pursuing God's will in all of life. We lose the plot, but we know by the gospel what it is. And so our gospel reading today in John 15 is part of what we call Jesus' upper room discourse. John devotes five chapters, 13 through 17, to words he remembered distinctly and the Holy Spirit brought back to his mind. These are Jesus' words of deep support and also meaningful challenge, which I talked about as his shepherding a couple weeks ago. And these are coming just before his betrayal and arrest. And they end with what we call this high priestly prayer over his present and future disciples. It's a prayer over us. And we have only these eight verses today in the reading, but I think they're a helpful call to reorient us, to reorient our stories around the one true and lasting story of the world, the one we so easily forget. Follow along with me. Beginning in verse 9, Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. There's something radical here. And we might miss it if we're not careful. What is Jesus' reason for loving his disciples? It's not them. It's not the quality of the relationship. Instead, what is he saying? The love he shows is sourced from the love he knows. It's an outflow of his relationship to the Father. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. It's stable. The Greek word translated abide, or in some translations, remain, it's an active verb. It's a staying. It's staying here. It's continuing in. It's even enduring in. Remain in my love. Continue in my love. It's not simply where you happen to be, but where you are determined to remain. Does that make sense? That's what abiding is. And why will it matter that they abide in this stable love that is grounded in the Father's love for Jesus? Here's the shorthand of what he's going to tell them before the night is over or has already told them by this point. People are going to be hard to deal with for you. And your egos may become a problem. I know that's not a problem for any of us in here. We don't have any difficult people in our lives. But your egos may become a problem. But remember how I loved you and remember how I washed your feet. He also says, you're going to feel lonely. You're going to feel forsaken in this world. And the world is going to actually hate you because they do hate me. But he says, the Holy Spirit will comfort you. There's going to be a lot of hard work, and it will be tempting to do it in your own power. But you are like branches connected to a vine from which you draw your strength and your sustenance. He also says, you're going to get kicked out of the synagogues and other public places that you are comfortable with. They're going to censor you, and they're even going to kill you, and they'll think it's virtuous. He says, it'll be easy to forget the truth that I love you, and there's so much more that I need to tell you, but you can't hear it all right now. You can't handle it all, but the Spirit, whom I will send, will remind you. And then he says this, there's going to be sorrow really, really soon, and you're going to have trouble in the world, guaranteed. But I've overcome the world. Take heart. Your sorrow will turn into joy. This is why he's telling them this. He makes it clear the Father's love for me is the fundamental reality of my life. My love for you can and will be the fundamental reality of yours. Come what may. Abide there. He continues in verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, 
just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in my love and his love. So abiding, as he begins to characterize it and condition it, it looks like obedience. To remain in Christ's love, to actively remain, means seeking to live the kind of life for which we are made. The kind that is an outflow of the Father's love for the world. And we become agents of that. It means we're moving from the periphery of faith toward the center, who is Christ. Not to earn our place, but to know and to experience love for what it really is. It's love that makes us more like Jesus. Notice that Jesus relates his own experience of the Father's love to the embrace of his Father's will in keeping his commandments. He is learning to live more in the Father's love. Throughout the Christian story, love that endures. This is important that we understand. When we say love, what do we mean as Christians? Love that endures is not what minds think or hearts feel, but it's what bodies do. It's not sentimentality. It's not abstract. Jesus' own body expressed his love through obedience and self-giving to the Father because he knew he was loved. His obedience was what? It was a reciprocal love. And he is saying our bodies are made for that same reciprocity with the same result, that we will know the love of the Father as we move toward the center of our affection and find the kind of person he is making us to be, the kind of community he is calling us to be. We need to be reminded that our moral efforts are not simply the ethical behavior of an in-group, what Christians do. But they do matter to love. They are what, who Christians are when we understand that they are an outflow of love. This is exactly what Jesus means. This is exactly what the disciples understood when they began to live in this particular kind of community in Acts 2 and the following. It's hard, and they, but they saw every aspect of their lives, every aspect, economic, vocational, relational, physical, and spiritual, as part of one overarching expression of love, of true humanity, of the kingdom. Even the choices they made about the food they ate around one another had the potential to exude love or to exclude love. Everything. They felt responsible for one another's strength and weakness in the everyday stuff of life. Does that mark at least the goal of our moral and ethical lives, our spiritual lives? To feel responsible for one another's strength and weakness in the everyday stuff of life? Even the hard stuff. Verse 11, he says, These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Because we know obedience can be hard. And we can tend to speak as though harmonizing with the will of God is just a grind and not a joy. We all feel that way. Often. But if we act as though that's how it is, a grind, then that's probably how we'll understand and experience it. On the other hand, we can view obedience when it's difficult as an enemy of grace. As though every effort becomes a form of earning something from God. But you see, Jesus is drawing... He's drawing a picture here for us. And now the truth is, effort you know, can become for us, it can become that. Our, our obedience can become a sense of trying to earn something from God. Many of us are conditioned in our relationships, you know, especially parentally, as people trying to earn and maintain the love of those who say they love us. But in either case, whether it's, you know, it's this effort to earn or whether it's this avoidance of any effort because of grace, we can imagine there is no fulfillment in obedience and in sacrifice 
that these are only substitutes for joy or grace. Jesus is telling us the opposite here. It's absolutely true that obedience, as the pursuit of acceptance, can be a grind. Relationships that amount to trying to please the other person, they are joyless, aren't they? Have you ever experienced that? But serving your beloved simply because they are beloved, because they're worth it, does a powerful work in our own hearts. And this is the example Jesus is setting. Loving others because we are loved by God, obeying because we are loved by God, this reciprocity, it creates a stability. It creates a relational stability. It helps us to not be anxious about how much love we are receiving. We know that God loves us and that we are, he has lavished his grace upon us. And what kind of people does that create? Those who love to love. Not perfectly, but persistently. Because obedience is fellowship with God. Have you ever thought about it that way? Or have you thought about it as the grind? Obedience is fellowship with God. And therein lies our deepest joy. Fellowship with God. And friends, no wonder it's so embattled. This is not what the enemy of your soul wants. He does not want your fellowship with God through your seeking to, to, to live God's will in your life. Verses 12 through 14, it gets better. Jesus talks about, he characterizes what this relationship, this fellowship looks like. He said, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. So Jesus restates the commandment to love and he qualifies it further. What is love? It is sacrificial. It just is. Love hurts. There are a handful of 80s songs that I recall that that's exactly what they wanted to remind us. You're probably singing them in your head right now. Better than the Battle Hymn of the Republic, right? So, love is sacrifice. It's what I am doing for you because you are my friends, Jesus says. It's what my friends do because they love their friends. They, they give themselves up. And when we truly receive, as I talked about last week, when we receive our baptism in Christ for what it is, we are accepting the inevitability of sacrifice, the expectation even of sacrifice. But this call to sacrifice assumes one very, very, very important detail, which is central to the plot. Are you ready for it? The strength for sacrifice, which is the pinnacle of obedience, does not come from within. It comes from the love Jesus has for us. This is the point he's saying, as I have loved you. Think about this. In chapter 2 of Jeremiah, the prophet paints a picture, a vivid picture of Israel's two sins with the image of water and a large vessel for storing it. It says this, They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. In other words, they've walked away from it. And they have hewed out cisterns for themselves. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. The reason that, power, that metaphor is so powerful is what you see is they're going to try to substitute the living water of God with their own supply. And this is endemic to our condition. Instead of what's provided for them, they prefer to drink from what they've made. But their version of life, it has a huge leak in it. In the metaphor, they're drinking away, but they're running out faster than they're able to fill it up. Israel has lost the plot so to speak. 
And so in John 15, Jesus says that the capacity for sacrificial love is sourced somewhere other than ourselves. It's sourced in the Father's love, and it's supplied by Jesus in his own sacrifice. Love as I have loved you. And we might avoid sacrificial love because, let's be honest, we fear what it'll cost us. We fear running out of our own resources. Human hearts battle scarcity and self-preservation. And it plagues our relationships. We're afraid to lay down our lives because we're afraid of what we'll have left, if anything. You resonate with that? What's it going to cost me? We all do that. But this invitation from Jesus, this call is to imagine that every act of obedience, even the most sacrificial, is sourced in the love of Jesus. That is uniquely true about the action, the obedience, the presence, the non-anxious presence of of Christians in the world. We know that the source for all of our do-gooding is not in ourselves, but it's in God. It's in the love we've been shown. If we believe we are the source, then we will run dry, and we'll be unwilling to risk it. The promise we have is that even in our losses, Christ has already provided for us. Do you think of it that way? I've got to hear this often in my role as a pastor. From where does the love for ministry come? There always has to be more than what I'm feeling or thinking at any given time. If love is meant to flow from being liked or being successful, then it's a broken cistern. If love is meant to flow from, being, uh, from people being lovable or likable, then we're drinking faster than it's drying up because we aren't always that. So where's the love supposed to come from? from the love we've been shown, the love Jesus knew in the Father. So it's worth asking, what sacrifice might be lingering in your mind that you aren't yet willing to make? Is it because you fear loss? Verse 15, he says, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I've made it known to you. And this is what we're rehearsing this morning. This is the plot guys. This is another evidence that following Christ is neither white-knuckle social justice. It's not slavish behavior management. It's sharing in the same glorious and meaningful work that Jesus has begun and is making known to us and is resourcing for us. It's rooted in what Jesus describes as friendship. Do you think of your relationship with God that way? The tendency is for us to think of it transactionally, right? But is it friendship? This is why the scriptures matter so much to us as they they rise above the cacophony of all of our external pressures and all the empty promises of our world. We need to hear that, that the love of God is drawing us into friendship. And if we shave down these words of Jesus, whether we make it legalism or we make it license, we're in danger of losing more than we'd like to admit. We will forget that following Jesus is a friendship. And we'll be left to dig our own spiritual or moral wells. And finally, in verses 16 and 17, he says, You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask in the Father's name or ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. There he is reaching into this, sense, this source of love and provision. He says, These things I command you so that you will love one another. Jesus tells his disciples they are chosen and they are commissioned, and that was particular to them Because that's exactly what Jesus did. He literally called them. 
But as Jesus already said earlier, his voice, his call is going to be heard by every generation. And that message ends up being echoed in, by Paul and the disciples after him. Paul tells the Ephesian believers this, and they're going through it in Ephesus. This is a staggering thought. He says, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. What Jesus says and what Paul echoes here is another message of supply. Do you know that the love, our identity is sourced before, in the chosenness of God before we even began? Our chosenness is a divine work that began long before we did. So it's not limited by what we can see in the present. We're always drawing on God. That's the nature of faith, and that's how being fruitful happens, Jesus says. And so after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, then the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost, the disciples took these words of Jesus to heart and to hand, and it began to make a community. They lived into their chosenness in a way that was unmistakably confident and faithful, even though it was hard, even though they were experiencing fear, which needed to continually be cast out by perfect love, as John tells us in the epistle today. We know how they worked this out initially, and it's a daunting proposition to think about it in our day and age, to imagine living it out as they lived it. But would there be any Christians in this age if they didn't do it? And there will there be any to be faithful to God in the ages to come if we don't live into this promise of God's supply, God's chosenness, and our friendship with him? What if we lose the plot? What will the church be if we do? We all know that community can be wild, hard. Christian community can be wilder than other forms of community because our expectations are understandably so high, so high. And it's a divine project with human actors. We know that we see this vision for humanity Christ gives according to the scripture. It situates us, situates us in community and with the concerns of others being our own concerns. And that's very difficult. The busier we are, the more divided we are, the more transient we are. But this is an integrated, integrated, active love that is meant to be at work among us uniquely. Uniquely. Sometimes our personal situations can feel like they're absolutely throttling us. But here's the challenge, and I think this is what Jesus knows about us that we might not know about ourselves. When we move toward others, we are drawing on Jesus. There's joy in that. We don't want to do it from the outset very often. It feels we feel the scarcity. But this is a promise Jesus is giving. He was glorified in his self-giving. He said, and I'm giving you that pattern. He's calling us to draw on his love and his friendship for the type of love and friendship we want for others. And this is why Jesus prays at the end of this discourse. And I'll close with this. He prays for them and he prays for us. Because he knows it won't be easy for them, it won't be easy for us. So let's just let this prayer wash over us again, can we? He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I've given to them. That they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, 
that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, help us to love like people who are loved and are secure in it, increasingly secure in that love. Help us to love others like they are loved. They are your beloved. To know the very purpose for which we were chosen in your beloved son for adoption, for family, for friendship. Help us to abandon all of these cisterns that we make, these broken cisterns, and help us to drink deeply from the well of your love, from the well of your will. Help us to obey. Help us to live according to your story. Help us to make it our own story, to remember what it is, how good it is, and how much our joy lies within that. Come what may. In your holy name we pray. Amen.